Coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. In the 1990s, the dusty Arizona winds carried strange tales from Rainbow Valley. Whispers of unusual lights, bizarre creatures, and a haunted ranch with a bloody past. A psychiatric counselor and his wife were looking for a fresh start in this beautiful and barren land. But unbeknownst to the couple, fate had set them on a lonely trail into horrifying high strangeness and mind-bending terror. On this episode of Belief Hole, we explore the incredible accounts and interdimensional happenings at Stardust Ranch. Sasquatch, homunculus, alien races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Close like, the door, in. Jeremy. In. Close your door. What's the uh, inner Earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, magicians are demons, specters, spirit summonings, strange disappearances, sky whale phenomena, yes. alternative history, shadow people. Shh, quiet! I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. Anunnaki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf towers. I would never talk about. It. That's old. Y2K. Cover-ups. Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Vampire. Well, hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Welcome, my friends, to the Belief Hole. I am Jeremy. I'm John. And I'm Chris. And we are back for another amazing episode. Season two. See, no. Season four, <laughs> episode two. <laughs> coming at you. Yes. This is a long coming episode. You know, I don't know how many times you say that to I know, but this one's true. Yeah. <laughs> I've had this book on my shelf for a couple of years and I've been wanting to do it, but it was such a investment of time and You've energy. You've been talking about it a lot. I've definitely heard much ado about yes. something. Stardust Ranch. A controversial tale to be sure, but a very incredible story. It's kind of like a Skinwalker Ranch, but a different ranch. Yeah, you could put it that way. Very similar, actually, right? Mm -hmm. You could look at it that way. There's a lot of similarities between the two. So this is a story, and I'm going to take you from the beginning all the way to at least a good uh, late middle of the story, because <laughs> at the end, it gets it's still kind of ongoing. But we'll get to that. But this place has some extremely unique factors, extremely unique events going on over there. Everything from homeless monster hunters to samurai sword ET executions, Jonathan. What? Yeah. I don't even know how to process the first one. Homeless monster hunters? Yeah. Does that mean there is a homeless person that hunts monsters? Well, we're going to find out. Okay. I guess that kind of goes to the passion that one would have to be a monster hunter. If not only are you homeless, but like that's not your primary well, concern. Your primary concern is the hunting yeah, of the monsters. It's more of a colorful title I gave to this certain event, but okay. uh, it's not really a homeless. Well, you'll see. You'll see. Drop the bills and chase the monsters. Drop the bills. 
But to become homeless. You, yeah. You're so focused on the hunting. Oh, I see. I see. I don't think that was this man's situation. Okay. I think monster hunting was like the end run. The homeless monster hunter is more of a- uh, you, you hunt monsters out of necessity when you really probably right. can't fend for but yourself. But this is not the star of our story, right? No, no, This no. is just- the homeless monster hunter is just is a colorful character that kind of introduces our protagonist into his home, his new home, which is Stardust Ranch. Yes, and we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let me let me back us up. Let me take us back in time. Rewind. Let's go back very briefly to the 1950s, where young John Edmonds is living in Evanston, Illinois. This is a bad area. This is a dangerous, violent part of town that he's living in. In the 50s? Yeah, and even in the 50s. You know, not everything was so... A lot of like... Peachy like King. snapping street gangs. <laughs> they, were, they were encroaching on his territory. These snapping street gangs. These dancers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, that's, just, that's not true. But in the course of this chaos of his childhood, he would find refuge by visiting his grandfather, who was a Cherokee guy who lived out in rural Arkansas. Uh, he had a small farm in the woods. But it was this dichotomy between these two places that really cemented a seed, a desire in him to eventually live one day in the wilderness, or at least live out away from metropolitan areas. A little off the grid. Exactly. This is where, I think because he found his peace there, away from the, the danger and violence, it would one day lead him to buy this ranch that we're going to be talking about today, which ironically becomes a very violent and dangerous place in the end. Very peace-free zone for him, yeah. right? So John Edmonds grows up. He becomes a psychiatric counselor. He moves to Phoenix, Arizona, where he meets his wife, Joyce. She's a clerk for the FBI. At about 37, he's been a psychiatric counselor for about a decade at this point almost, and he's just tired of it. He's just been worn down by dealing with people's extreme traumatic experiences day in and day out. Other people's problems. Other people's problems. He enjoyed helping people, but it was just becoming a little too much. And that call, that need to get out into the wilderness started to encroach on his spirit again. Before we get into the story, before we get into the meat of it, what's coming up in the expansion, Jer? Yes, I'm glad you asked, Chris. It's going to be real fun. Yes. It's real exciting. This is not the topic I plan to do, but I was in a bookstore and a title struck my curiosity. It was called Evil Archaeology. Oh. Demons, Possessions, and Sinister Relics. And I thought, that's kind of a curious idea. Synchronistically, we just watched Ghostbusters Afterlife, and the whole idea of Ghostbusters is the idea of the Sumerian demon god, Gozer, right? It has to do with the digging up of these ruins, right. the archaeology. And I thought, how interesting, the, the concept of bringing back, we've talked about the idea of cursed objects and haunted dolls and items and chairs. And Yeah, actually, we have a listener story we might do later in this episode. Yeah, to kind of preview that. But I just thought it was a, kind of a cool theme for an episode. While I was doing a little bit of research, I definitely branched off into some interesting areas, including very secretive, occulted, Nazi, mystic organization, however you want to refer to it, the Enanerbe. Something to that effect. Probably not pronouncing that right. This is one example of some of the stuff in this book, but I did some corroborative research to back some of the stuff up. Alleged demon skulls found demon uh, skulls. in the wilderness near briefcases from 1941 of secretive Nazi occult organizations, secret societies studying these kind of paranormal mysteries and ancient origins and maybe contacting other realms, other creatures for technology. It spirals into that, but this could go all kinds of ways. So it's going to be a really interesting episode, really fun. That's cool. So it's not just haunted objects. It's evil archaeology. It's strange things dug up. The concept of, yeah, possessed items, energy connecting itself to these sort of objects that then become malevolent forces in people's lives and become these legendary artifacts of darkness and mystery. It's going to be an interesting episode. So Sounds heavy. You guys need to check it out and we'll have a preview for you guys later in the break. So awesome. stick around for that. But uh, let's get back to Stardust Ranch. 
Okay, so back to Stardust Ranch. Do it, brother. This is a place of madness, it turns out. Initially, John Edmonds and his wife Joyce were looking for a place, well, specifically John was looking for a place of relaxation, respite, but also a place, we can relate to this, a place to begin your own entrepreneurial pursuits. Mm. Absolutely. He wanted to own his own time. It'd be cool to have a ranch for the show. Oh, yeah. The Beliefful Ranch. That would be fantastic. Let's put it on the calendar. On the docket. Raise goats and explore mysteries. Yes. (laughs) Right? Goats? Mm -hmm. Free milk. That's my choice. Yes. So he's looking for a property. He's got a place in mind. He wants sort of a ranch where he can start developing these projects he has in mind. We'll get to what he ends up starting out there in the desert of Arizona. But he reaches out and he contacts a realtor. And as luck would have it, they have the perfect place for him. But it is further out in the more rural and undeveloped area in a place called Rainbow Valley. So he gets an appointment to check out the place. Uh, They go. The whole place is full of furniture, beautiful furniture, beautiful appliances. He thinks that it's kind of weird that all the stuff's still in there because it's for sale. And the realtor explains to him that it is the previous occupant's sort of vacation place, that they're not there all the time. That's what he's saying anyway. Kind of like a winter home? Yeah. So that kind of explains it. At least he thinks it does. He and his wife discuss it. Joyce, though, immediately has a bad feeling about this place. He thinks it's the perfect place. It's got everything he wants. It's got the 10 acres. It's got a stable out back. It's got like five bedrooms. It's perfect. She thinks there's something wrong with the place. She can't put her finger on it. And of course, he's thinking she just doesn't want to leave Phoenix, that her job's there. She doesn't want to commute, understandably. But he convinces her that this is the right place. So they call the realtor. They make the purchase, set everything in motion. The day they go to move in, everything's packed up in the U-Haul. They get to what's going to become known as Stardust Ranch. And they pull in. They walk inside expecting a blank canvas to, you know, start bringing their things in and creating their own home. The place is still full of furniture and appliances. That's frustrating. And a dead alien. No dead aliens yet, John. Don't, <laughs> don't jump ahead. Uh, so he's like, what the hell? This is uh, supposed to be an empty place. This is our place. He calls the realtor pretty, pretty upset. First, he's just confused, right? As yeah, anyone I would be. be. Yeah, like he, this was the day they're supposed to move in. It's still full of stuff. That would be very inconvenient. And the realtor says, okay, I'll take care of this. Just go out, enjoy Buckeye. This is the town that they're in now in Rainbow Valley. And check out the town. Go see a movie, kind of get your bearings. Come back later tonight. I'll have something figured out. So they get back later tonight. Like magic, everything is gone. That was fast. Yeah. They feel like this is fast. Like everything is gone, but they're, they're happy. They take their mattresses, they pull them in the house, they throw them on the floor, ready to spend their first night in their new home. And John gets up and decides to take a survey of the property, walks out back, looks up at the desert sky. It's a beautiful night. He's happy to be in his new home, this place he's been imagining for years. He walks a little forward, looks down into the pool, and it's full of about $10,000 worth of furniture and appliances. What? Yeah. (laughs) In his in-ground pool. Wow. That would be nonplussed. Yeah. First, he's just dumbfounded. It's like, what? Is it underwater? Or? No, it's it's an empty pool. Okay. But it's all sitting in there. It's just like laying in this cement hole. Oh my God, dude. I would lose, this, I'd lose it. Yeah. I'd be I'd like, jackpot. It. I'm going to eBay. <laughs> right. You just live in there. <laughs> Jerry just moves into the pool <laughs> and rents out the house. <laughs> plug stuff in. I could see you doing that. He's like sleeping on a microwave. Keeps him warm at night. No winters <laughs> down there, man. I guess it'd probably be pretty chilly. Cold Phoenix just Desert. some pizza? <laughs> All right, what happened next? Okay, so he goes inside and he tells Joyce, Joyce, you got to see this. So she walks out and she's like, what? How is this even possible? He's like, so I don't know. All the stuff that was in there is all of it just got moved into the pool? Yeah, about $10,000 worth of stuff. 
Furniture too, or just electronics? Furniture too, like brand the new leather couches. Yeah, that was a bit big pool. Well, it wasn't everything that was in there, but it was a lot of the expensive right, stuff. Okay. And I think it was a pretty big pool. But what an odd thing to do. Like if, very if it was the realtor or the previous people, odd choice because it's not like you're not going to get found out. Well, uh, yeah, right. It seems like more trouble than it's worth. Right. First of all, look at all the money you're throwing away. So he thought, well, maybe if anything, it maybe the realtor hired some like you know kind of sketchy handyman to get the stuff right. out and he just did a crabby job. Uh, <laughs> well, never, really look, crabby. never looking here. Well, yeah, it must have been, you know, someone that obviously was scamming them. Like they paid for the right, moving maybe and they take, just, you know, threw in the pool and left sort of thing. Yeah. So he calls the realtor on the, and the realtor says, um, aliens, uh, the realtor said, no, he was unable to make any arrangements to get anything out of that house. Oh, so weird. it wasn't him. He said he couldn't get a hold of the original occupants that their number had been disconnected. That's weird. So he never learned how that stuff got in the pool. The realtor called over and over, couldn't get a hold of the people that had owned the property. And so at this point, John's getting pretty furious. He's like, listen, I have all this shit in the pool. He's like, well, you get about $10,000 worth of nice appliances. He's like, you know, he's like, yeah, but I have my own appliances. I don't need this problem. Craigslist. <laughs> they have it back then? No, well, maybe not. the mid nineties. No, they wouldn't have had that back then. There's no it was, eBay it was either. Charles List back then. Charles List. Mr. Charles Downey's List. <laughs> Charles Downey. It was a Downey. formal event. You would go downtown. <laughs> Mr. Charles Downey is having an event. So basically he says, listen, John, you paid in cash. This is your problem now. Yeah, I guess you couldn't leave Yelp reviews then either. So the realtor probably wasn't too worried. <laughs> Just leave him with yeah. the problem. true. That has changed the real estate game. Oh, it sure has. So end of the... End of the story with the pool is they just had to deal with it. So he ended up getting like a wench. It took him like a couple of weeks to get everything out and move to the end of the road. But this kind of validated Joyce's concern, his wife, who had from the beginning said there's something wrong. She had a bad feeling. Yeah. I listen to your lady. So for this next part, I'd like to read a little section of the book. John, will you read? If you wouldn't mind, would you be John? Chris, I would be honored. This is The Man Who Killed Monsters. The experience with the contents of the house and the pool left me out of sorts. I kept thinking to myself and didn't share it with Joyce. I don't know if I was just being paranoid, but it suddenly dawned on me that there were aspects of living in such a remote location that I had not accounted for, specifically safety. I bought a gun, a 357 Magnum. I had never been a big gun guy, but living in such a remote area where police response might be quite some time, I decided it was prudent of me to have a weapon to protect myself and my wife. Little did I know back then that I would come to arm myself in ways that I had never imagined. Sometime in our second month at the ranch, I was home alone while Joyce was at work in Phoenix. I saw a man come off the road and begin walking up my long dirt laneway. Right away, I knew there was something off about him. He was about five feet, nine inches tall, and he wore a military style shirt with sleeves cut off over a t-shirt. He had on a very well-worn pair of jeans that looked as though they hadn't been washed in some time. A very worn pair of lace black boots adorned his feet. He had long gray hair parted in the middle, sort of like Willie Nelson, and somewhere between a one and a two week salt and pepper beard over very gaunt cheeks. I put the gun to the back of my pants and walked out of the house to meet him on the laneway. As I got closer to him, I could see an intensity in his eyes, something I had come to equate with many psychotics I met with the counseling practice. His teeth were in horrible condition, yellow and broken, marking him as someone who had lived rough for a while, years maybe, 
but what caught my attention most was the well-used 24-inch machete he was carrying in his hand. He didn't appear to have a scabbard for it. A man walking around with a machete was not out of place in Rainbow Valley, but a man walking around holding a machete was unusual. It made me tense up in the way I used to feel when I was walking around my neighborhood in Evanston, as though anything could happen, as though I had to be prepared for immediate and spontaneous violence. We both came to a stop around the midpoint of a hundred yard laneway, 10 feet between us, squared off like a couple of gunfighters cautiously studying each other. I spoke first. Can I help you? I live here, he said. Excuse me? I asked. I tried not to be rude or too incredulous because I didn't know what the guy was talking about. He pointed up with the machete off to the distance, stating he lived there. I took a glance behind me. I assumed he meant the storage shack about 25 yards from the main house. I'd already taken a look inside it. I didn't see the makings of any kind of squat for this homeless man. I had the sense that he was a veteran. In any case, I was extremely tolerant of him. I'm sorry, I said. I don't have an arrangement with you. Did the previous occupants allow you to live on the land? Did you help out around here or something? He then said something that made my whole body tighten up. I killed the monsters. I don't know why, but even thinking back about this all those years ago makes me uncomfortable. I quickly became impatient with the man. Look, I don't know what arrangement you had with the previous owners of this ranch, but I don't want you living here. He sort of cold cocked me with a thousand yard stare and simply said, You're going to regret that. Then he turned around and walked away as he had come. Between the man with the machete in my laneway and the entire contents of the house being put in the pool, I still did not connect with Joyce's intuition about the place. I guess I should have seen it. It could not have been a stronger forewarning by the law of circumstance and synchronicity. The only thing missing was the crazy old man from the Friday the 13th movie franchise warning the teenagers not to go to Camp Blood. Was that the name of the camp? No, I think it's the general statement. Okay. Isn't that a weird story? Yeah, very weird. Yeah. Which is so crazy because I don't I, like where this is going, but I do. <laughs> Which is funny because the machete aspect of it, I was familiar with the story. So when I read that with the machete, I was like, okay, it kind of all makes sense now, mm-hmm. which we'll get to why there's this machete brandishing man why he living may, on the property. He may have actually wanted him there as yeah, things move forward. Really interesting. By the way, I should say that this story comes from a really good book called Stardust Ranch, The Incredible True Story. And it's written by John Edmonds, but with Bruce McDonald, right. who John was introduced to to help write this book. And that story is, maybe I'll back up for a second and tell you a little bit about how that happened because initially Bruce McDonald started the project with John and then became disinterested. Helping him write his book? Now, yeah, to help him write the story. At that time, Bruce McDonald was more of a fiction writer. He wrote in Canada, had some success, but at some point he ended up moving down to Costa Rica and ironically kind of lived a similar lifestyle in the way of going out into the middle of nowhere. And this is, of course, after a lot of the stuff had gone on at the ranch and John had been introduced to Bruce to write the book. Anyways, Long story short, Bruce is living in Costa Rica. He'd had enough of the city as well. He was living on this property out there, really involved with the land, when suddenly he starts getting visited by orbs of light above his home, even to the degree where his neighbors would come and talk to him about what they're seeing over his house, which is strange because he wasn't a big UFO guy or anything, the the co-author, when he was going to write the story. And that's what began his 
initial move to get back to that manuscript that he had started eight or nine years ago, which was this book. When, what I heard was, was interesting connected to that was that when he started to write this book, for the, I guess the second time, 10 days into it, he just could not. I guess this is a problem that a lot of authors have had trying to cover the story is it's so, in his words, it's caustic material, almost like energetically toxic when you're trying to produce this book based on these experiences that John has had. It was just extremely difficult. Like he was meditating and trying to just stay in a good positive place, but it just was weighing on him so darkly. He was felt bad, but he was going to call John and say, I can't do this anymore. And then that light entered his room that his wife described as angelic. He called it a ball of bright light. This is Bruce's wife from Costa Rica, right? Yeah, the co-author. He said it was like luminescent water, this orb oh, floating above his like bed. The abyss. And after this thing appeared, this positive, energetic thing, he said everything cleared away and he was able to complete the book. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that the author that's kind of taken this on to help yeah. John tell his story has had his own experiences. Well, I, he felt I, like it was a connection, like things didn't want him to write it. And then yeah. there was like a positive aspect. Well, I get why you would find that darkness in trying to write this book, because as you're going to hear, there's some truly dark things that begin to occur on the ranch. All right, so they're on the ranch. Obviously, they know something strange is going on uh, a little bit. But he, even at this point, John is blinded by his desire to start these enterprises. He's been taking his Jeep out loves it at dawn and dusk because that's when the sky's pink, beautiful, brilliant sunsets and sunrises. Oh, yeah. He's out in the desert and he sees a, just a wandering horse, which he thinks is odd. He goes back to his ranch and gets some hay and some water comes out. Soon enough, he's got 12 horses following his Jeep. He realizes that these are abandoned horses that were just left by ranchers who didn't want to take care of them anymore. So he starts an animal sanctuary, hopes for hope or something like that. So that's one of his enterprises, right? He's got a bunch of dogs. He had like 30 dogs at one point. He wanted to get 30 dogs. I don't okay. think he ever got that many, but he had his favorites. An odd number to choose. 30? I just like 30 dogs. <laughs> My was like 20s, fine. The dirty 30. That's what he called them. They'd run around town together. They got to keep the horses in line. Anyway, so uh, of course, you're living in this new place. This is still the 90s. Most people are still using landlines a little bit, right? Mid 90s, mid to oh, yeah. late 90s even. So he tries to get the installation set up. And I won't go deep into this, but just briefly, because it is interesting. This is what clues him into the history of his property. So oh, right. he calls Bell Southwest to get telephone lines installed. He makes an appointment. He sets aside four hours because you don't know when they're going to show up. Of course, that's still the case. The appointment comes and goes. No one shows up. Uh, a little flustered. He calls again. They make another appointment. A week goes by. No one shows. Finally, he calls again, gets a hold of uh, someone higher up. She informs him that, you know, it's a contract situation. These are people who that are contracted to do installations and... They don't actually work technically a salary for the company. He said, that's a weird way to run a business. She's basically like, we've never had an issue before. And then she goes, oh. He hears typing, realizes she's looking at his address. She says, your property has a bit of a reputation. And he's like, that's strange. What does that mean? And then he says, okay, can I get my line installed? She said, listen, I'm getting you my personal guarantee. Next week, someone's going to come out. They're going to install your line. A week goes by, no one shows. At this point, he's like, I'm just going to let it go. I need to cool down because he's so angry. Next day, luck would have it. A little white truck pulls up and a man gets out with his clipboard, looks around nervously, cautiously, walks up to the house. And now he knows there's some sort of reputation here. So he kind of breaks the ice, John does, and says, you know, I know I hear there's some things with my house that you guys don't want to come and install. And he's like, oh, you don't know the history of your property? And he says, no. Turns out this guy lives in Buckeye. The technician? Yeah. He's familiar, which is probably why he was willing to go because he's, you know, yeah, he knows the stories, but he's also a local. So here's a quick rundown 
of the history of this property here in Rainbow Valley, this uh, what's going to become to be known as Stardust Ranch, starts off, Guy builds house for his wife in 1977. Very similarly, the wife shows up. This is a surprise for her. Sort of a wedding proposal thing, or shortly after married, she takes one look at the place and says, I'm never living here. If you make me live here, I will divorce you. Ouch. So that's what happens. He makes her live there. They get divorced. They get divorced. She leaves. Soon after that, the place is bought by an off-track betting outfit, and it eventually develops into a brothel. Off-track betting was eventually made illegal, and so the whole place was shut down. Who knows what things went on? Usually when you have... Illegal Um, activities. Yeah, uh, especially when the money's involved and, you know, broken hearts. Prostitution. Broken hearts. After this, and this is a whole other mystery, so I'm not going to go super into it, but after this, the, the Sons of Gestapo bought it, which was an alleged sort of domestic terrorism outfit, but that's according to some in the government at the time, the ATF, the FBI, the people in Buckeye said that they weren't these types of people. They just wanted to live off the grid, basically. Like a militia of some sort? And they were blamed for the derailing of the Amtrak Limited line, Sunset Limited. Oh, yeah. Which ended up killing someone and injuring a bunch of people. A bunch of train cars went off a trestle. That was never solved, but there was a note at the scene, allegedly, complaining about Ruby Ridge, how that was handled, Waco, Mm-hmm. And it's it was signed Sons of Gestapo. This just seems strange because normally organizations like that would attack a government target, not a civilian target. True. Right. I mean, I could see the argument that it was the government needing an, a false flag, an excuse to... Mm-hmm. That was John Edmonds, Bruce McDonald's idea on that. They didn't go super into it, and we won't either. But basically, the point in our story is that the people that lived in this house, the Sons of Gestapo, and that's not in contention, there was allegedly, according to the people in town, a standoff where people died. There's no record of the actual shootout, but according to the people in town, the story goes that the Sons of Gestapo would not be questioned. A shootout ensued and several of them were killed. More blood on the ranch. So yet another example of blood and... Yeah, yeah. a lot of uh, past. Yeah. A lot of darkness. The last thing I want to mention is just after that, a Mexican family bought the ranch, started a cattle operation, and it ran successfully. It worked pretty well. They specialized in veal. On the day of graduation... For their son, he put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his head off. More blood on the ranch. So you're kind of seeing a picture here, right? There's darkness, something here. Tragedy follows this right. place. Exactly. And the people involved. Why is the question? And even after learning this, John is still in love with the possibilities of this place and what he can do there with the, the sanctuary. He's started a small motorcycle repair shop repairing motorcycles. So he's enjoying it. Joyce is still having to commute, which is not fun for her. What? Uh, there's a lot of stress on their marriage. She works for the FBI, right, Joyce? Yeah. How far was her commute, do you know? Like an hour or something? Yikes. Phoenix, okay. hour and a half. It was a long commute. But very quickly after this, there's a disquiet, he calls it, that begins in the home. Mood swings begin. He gets angry for no reason. When Joyce is gone, he hits walls, he breaks things, but always in a way that he can kind of cover it up. Because, you know, this is his baby. This is his dream. Anything that he does that's going to be more of an obvious problem for Joyce is just going to give her more ammunition to say, let's get out of here. But it's this darkness that he's feeling. He's noticing that there's pressure changes, there's temperature changes, it's getting cold in there. He's starting to notice that when he's getting upset, when he's getting angry, if he pays attention to what's happening further outside of him, but around the property, he's noticing that the horses are acting up out in the stable. The dogs are barking when these pressure changes happen. When he gets angry, there's commotion outside. And he starts to feel like there's a preternatural aspect to what's happening. There's something preternatural, some predatory force that's coming and going from the ranch. And that's what he's picking up on. That's what he believes at this point. And it's about to be proved. 
Reminds me of like Amityville. Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Very much. Because he slowly starts to lose it. Be influenced by these other exactly things. Or Jack uh, Jack Torrance from The Shining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that, that's the idea here is that like the stuff that's going on. Yeah, obviously extraterrestrial, interdimensional, whatever you want to call it. But there's also an aspect here that is paranormal. That is dark in that way. There's poltergeist activity that starts occurring around this time when he's having these mood swings. When he gets angry, things move in the house. Glasses start to break. Things shatter. And as the story continues, we will have appearances of bizarre entities. Bizarre entities indeed. Experiences and some uh, very close bloody encounters with these invaders. Yes. It's going to get strange here on Stardust Ranch. We're going to take a quick break. We are. And in this break, you guys will enjoy, hopefully, a preview of the expansion episode. If you guys are not signed up and you want to, head over to bleafhole.com, click the expansion button. Hang out with us more. Get in the hole. Yes. Get in and dig it. We're missing you there. Enjoy this preview for uh, evil archaeology and haunted, cursed objects. We'll be back on the other side and we'll miss you. Access granted. What kind of sets up the idea for her, maybe in her mind, is before she became an archaeologist, anthropologist, and author, she witnessed an exorcism in her 20s. Crazy. On like a cross-country road trip. She was in South Carolina, small town in South Carolina, edge of town, the small non-denominational Christian church, and her friend invites her to go. And they're, they're witnessing just a service and whatnot. And then about an hour in, the preacher's running back and forth on the pews. She's like, okay, what's going on? At this point, some people start shaking. You start getting the speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And she's okay, start to understand something's happening here. Then, at this point, the preacher calms down, goes back to the pulpit. Things are starting to go crazy, but he's just calm, standing at the pulpit. Then a lady is wheeled in on a hospital bed. Looks like she's asleep. The congregation gets up, starts gathering around her, and her friend's like, do you want to go? And she's like, what is this? And she's like, well, they're about to do an exorcism. Crazy. In a public format like that? Yeah, it was a church. Interesting. You know, in a small Christian church. So yeah, she's like, they're about to do an exorcism. And she's like, well, okay, I, I want to see this. And so this is a short excerpt I'll read from her book of what happens. Skeptical, albeit intrigued, I went up to get a closer look at what was happening as I was one of the only three people left sitting in the pews. Everyone else was up front, surrounding the woman in the hospital bed. The preacher put his hands over the woman and she spoke in tongues. She continued to moan and writhe, and from the same door where she was wheeled in came a procession of about four live goats. What? As the goats walked aimlessly through the church, the hospital bed shook violently. The woman in the bed shrieked, her face so red that I feared she would have a stroke. Her vocalizations oscillated between glass-shattering shrieks and guttural growls. The only word that was intelligible was, Alu. The preacher asked, Demon, is that your name? To which the woman responded only, Now what's interesting is, I googled this right after I read that. Mm -hmm. Alu is an ancient Sumerian demon. Welcome back to the hole, guys, and welcome back to Stardust Ranch as we take our intrepid course into the deserts of Arizona. The place where all your nightmares come true. Apparently. Dreams and nightmares. There is a sort of 
balance that comes throughout this story of this fascination, beauty, and mystical goodness almost, uh, but always <laughs> countered with heavy, heavy darkness. Yeah. Even for the animals. It's like oh, yeah. they have a sanctuary, but they're not safe. Right. As we'll learn. It's almost a feeding ground. Yeah, John, you might need earmuffs for this next, one of these next stories. Well, I have here. to read it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, lost a light. Guys, in the studio, we just lost a light. Is that interference from the beyond? Weird, that light went darker when the light went off. The yeah, timer. Was, like the plug was yanked or something yeah, maybe. in the back. It's all plugged into the same search. But how would that happen? The demon dog or the gatekeeper, the key master. Those are Ghostbusters references for those that don't know. <laughs> I did enjoy that movie. By the way, it's yeah, if you haven't seen the new Ghostbusters, we highly recommend it. I think it. most people have at this point. I honestly waited because I've, you know, we've talked about this before. I don't know if you ever got on the show, but we had the idea of Son of Ghostbuster about 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. It's basically the same plot, so I was hesitant to watch this one, but it was excellent, I thought. I knew it would be good, but I didn't realize it would be. It was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was great. We recommend it. Anyways, back to our story. John Edmonds' story. John and Joyce living on this ranch. So... Something's about to take place in, the, in our story here that's going to change John's stance on going from a passive victim to someone ready to take a stand. John, will you read this account here from John from our book here, Stardust Ranch, The Incredible True Story? The situation reached a pitch when I lost my favorite dog. We kept the dogs outside in dog crates in a large structure that was like a kennel. I spent time with the dogs every day. I've always had a very special relationship with animals. On this particular day, as I watched Joyce drive off, I turned around to go out to the kennels, and everything felt okay. I went out the back door and walked towards the Rottweilers, and even from some 25 yards away, I could see that something was wrong. One of the dog crates had been opened. I began to scan the terrain. Not too far from the dog crate, I saw what were the remains of my favorite Rottweiler. It was the first animal mutilation that I experienced on the property, and it was also the first experience with something that would come to represent the oppressive feeling and change of pressure that I had felt in the house. It had acted. I knew the moment I saw the dead dog, it was the force in the house that was responsible. Now I knew all of these things were not accidents to begin with. It was all real, and it was becoming more aggressive. What was particularly disconcerting about the animal's death was the manner in which it had been killed. The carcass was completely flat, no thicker than a manhole cover. It's weird. Yeah. It was as though it had been run over by a steamroller, but there were no innards, no blood, no gore scattered about. It wasn't possible. There was also the crate to consider. Something had to take the dog out of the crate if you know anything about Rottweilers, the first thing you might be asking yourself right now is, why didn't we hear anything? I actually did ask myself that. Right? Why didn't we hear anything in the middle of the night? There are eight dogs. One of them, my favorite, was taken out of his crate, desecrated and mutilated. I didn't hear any sound associated with the panic of the dog being killed, nor did I hear any barking from the seven companion dogs who would have been in a state of extreme agitation knowing that one of their pack was being attacked and killed. My first emotional response was pure rage. I stomped around for some 15 or 20 minutes just cursing and kicking the ground and yelling at the top of my lungs. Whatever did this had my full attention. The day that line was crossed, the day that my favorite dog was killed, 
was the day that I declared war on whatever was assaulting me in the ranch. Yeah, that would do it. Yeah. This begins the impetus for his fighting back, his call to arms. His, uh, what's the World War II one? Pearl Harbor? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. his Pearl Harbor. Yeah. You can put it that way. Yeah, that would be very disconcerting and also very emotional. Especially since he was the dog he was the closest to. It's very weird that there was no sound from the other dogs. That would imply some sort of stealth ability or yeah, other dimensional. Just able, yeah, just almost like freezing time. Or, exactly. You know, Obviously, the most real-world thought that would occur would be some sort of narcotic, putting dogs to sleep, something like, like that. But obviously, or something. Yeah, which you could argue, but the way that the story goes, how the things increase in high strangeness. Obviously, whatever is doing this, and look, look at the carcass as well. Yeah, like obviously, yeah. Like, how do you do that? Flat. Yeah, right. These things are working in a dimensionality. That, that. Yeah, very bizarre. And, the, and that is one thing he mentions about just the animals in general: his horses, because he has plenty of horse mm-hmm. mutilations. As time goes on. Yeah. And the same thing always occurs. It can be in the stable, in a horse right. stall or whatever, and you never hear any sounds. Like, that's the point of having all those dogs is to be alerted. Right. You pack animals and, you know, you're yeah. gonna, they're going to be, they're social animals. You're going to hear if something's bothering one of them, they're going to be all freaking out. Right. And you never hear that. I feel like at this point, I'd be considering leaving. That's, yeah. and you know, the whole time I was reading the book, I kept feeling, I kept thinking like, <laughs> and his wife feels so bad for her. Because she's constantly like, let's go. And he's like, well, he made one line that I thought was curious. He said, uh, you know, my wife, it was going to end our marriage. It was that bad. It was looking like it could end our marriage. And he's like, but I have never taken on something so large, you know, a ranch, my own ranch, my land. I felt like I needed to take a stand. It was the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. And I was thinking like, well, your marriage though. Yeah. You know, like that's also like... Yeah, I, I mean, think like, she stood by him, you right. know. But well, I think, it, I think if you're possessed man by that. Man and his property, though. That's true. Yeah. Well, woman's his property. Well, he talks a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Boy. That was a joke, guys. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, and in the book, he does talk a lot about that, about how this was his animalistic side of his mind. This was the the bear in his den. The, this is a thing where it's your animal brain takes over when something is coming into your home. Sure, your domain, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that awakens something kind of ancient. Mm-hmm. That was his argument. Also, too, he's had all those animals. Like, yeah. at this point- Almost has to say, like, what are you going to do with all those animals? Just pick up and go. You can't go right. anywhere. But you leave them on the slaughter farm. <laughs> well, they're <laughs> not. I mean, it's off. not happening. What he says in the book is that it it becomes a situation where it happens so irregularly. Like, it's just enough time to pass where you almost forget that it happened and then it happens again. Like, years right. will go by. It messy, it'll yeah. happen again. Oh, is that far between? Yeah. He was there for years, right? Like mm-hmm. decades? He was at the well, range. I mean, yeah, that's I a different story then. Yeah. So it's one of these things where it just knew how long to, I mean, there are things that happened initially, I think a little faster pace, but eventually like the mutilations, I think occur further further apart. Other things, other activities. to like, let you settle in again. Just Mm -hmm. to pick at you. But his wife being like, you know, levitated and uh, them both being prodded. We'll we'll get there. Just giving some hints. What's coming up. There's definitely some things. Let's let's get to that. So, but but I did want to say, you know, I think there's multiple factors going in. If the story is true and that's, it is a controversial story to be sure never met him nor his detractors. I can say from what I've read in his book, I like the man. Um, yeah. But who knows? Can I know? make one, just one transparent statement on that? Sure. So I was trying to find some corroborative evidence or just to see what, if he's, because this came out in 2017. And actually Tony Merkel, our friend Tony Merkel of Confessionals interviewed him in 2017. Oh, he did? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. I didn't know either until just before recording this. But we'll link that in the show notes, guys, if you want to hear from his own words. But uh, one of the interesting things from reading the book well, there's one story in particular that we'll probably touch on later, a story about a doppelganger. It was just one example where I heard the story and it was a crazy story. I was really interested in it and I am. And I heard him on a more recent interview from 2020, the most recent one I could find, which by the way, he says in Tony's interview in 2017 or 2016, it might've been that when the book comes out and everything, he wants to just disappear. 
because it's going to be basically a bombshell, but he wants his life to calm down. So that could be an explanation for yeah. why he's you don't see him anymore. This came out in 2020, I believe. So just one thing I mentioned about that story was when I read the story in the book about the doppelganger, he describes it differently than in this interview in a way that it involves his wife. It's a very freaky experience. And there's a couple details that were different. Right. And the one explanation, you know, given benefit of the doubt is the book is written, I think, largely by extrapolated information by the co-author, right? Bruce. Bruce, who did a great job. And maybe those details were slightly changed, not intentionally, but just little things like this doppelganger that he saw came out of the bathroom in the book. But in the interview I heard him, he said it never came out and he asked the waitress to go look and she was gone. So there's like little discrepancies that could definitely make you ask further questions. It'd be interesting to talk to him. Yeah. But I could see why there it is controversial, obviously because of the claims. But let's continue on some of these. Right, stories. we'll talk about that later. You know, towards the end, let's let's tell the story. So at this point, he's waking up with marks and wounds. His wife too, Joyce. They're waking up with strange marks. He starts buying more weapons, <laughs> as you might. <laughs> so weird. What is more weapons going to yeah. do? You can only use one at a time. Well, yeah. Well, th- what he went on to do, I think, was place them around his home. So no matter where he was, like he'd a, have a weapon, like a booby trap. Yeah, but or like a. Like an arsenal, like a arsenal. Oh, so you could just grab it. Real exactly. Quick, he guess. said yeah. he said he bought long arms, so he had that pistol right in the beginning of the revolver, whatever it was, shotgun. Uh, he started buying long long arms and automatic weapons like the AK forty seven, which will come into play here soon. But he knew, didn't he, that like in reality, was, isn't gonna do what anything. is it going to do? Is, yeah. Was his thought in his back of his head? But he felt like there was this just natural urge to mm-hmm. just protect right. himself. In some I would way. feel the same way. Yeah, I'd be collecting arms. At this yeah. point, he doesn't know if it's going to do anything. Right. Because he hasn't been able to get a shot off at anything. He hasn't seen anything at this point. I mean, just the dog incident, though. I mean, you have to know you're dealing with something that is not normal. I mean, a flattened pancake dog with no gore and no sound. Right. But he's not necessarily thinking that it's something that can't be hurt physically. That's true. You know what I mean? Hard to know. It sounds like the most effective weapon, though, that he gets is... Not a gun at all, right? Right. Let's see. Well, we'll get we'll get to you that. You will. Too. You tell a story about yeah. how he gets that. Yeah, I will get there. That that's a riveting part. As I kind of mentioned in the beginning, there's a samurai aspect to this story, which is indeed fascinating. John, if you would read this, this is a quick quote just about him arming himself. I was also buying large knives and laying baseball bats and other defense items throughout the house so that there was easy access to self-defense in almost any 10 square feet in the house. Sounds like some cheesy action movie from Hollywood, but that's what I had been reduced to some kind of dumb animal, cornered and beyond nonviolent resolution. And I do like this about this book. You know, as crazy as the stories that are in here are, there are these constant sort of qualifying statements, like I know this sounds crazy, this sounds like a cheesy horror movie, but this is how it happened. How many times he says, I'm just telling you the truth. So there is that obvious ownership of what he is saying sounds sounds crazy. Bananas. Yeah. Anyway, so at this point, you know, as you talked about Joyce, like why, you know, she wanted to go, their marriage was on the rocks to say the least. Eventually he told her like, listen, this crazy stuff is happening. I'm not going to go. You can go if you need to. And he, again, later he said he regretted this because of what he put her through, but he was just in this, he had this, he was just blinded by, this was his life's dream. That was one of the many things that went into this decision to stay. I wonder if part of that isn't a supernatural decision. If indeed all these things happened. maybe their marriage wasn't great. You know, you don't know what the dynamics were. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't talk about that in the book. He said, you know, moving in, obviously she didn't want to. So there was this, you know, she had that initial feeling from the beginning. So there were these, 
these fights would start to build up. And with this negative energy that was in the house, he said it was becoming a regular thing. There were fights. Mm -hmm. Anyways, time goes on. And this all stretches out over a period of time. At one point, there's, you know, he's talking around town, telling, you know, kind of dropping hints. Some people are starting to offer help. He meets somebody, I think a tax, his tax guy is a Mormon. And I think since the guy knows the property, he's heard some things. They get in a conversation. Basically, he offers to come or get the church, the Mormon church to do some sort of blessing on the home. Or exorcism. And allegedly uh, Mormon higher up and then a couple like acolytes come and try to bless the home and they go through it. It fails horribly because they as he says, the hunters become the hunted. <laughs> and at some point, as soon as they start to show weakness, the acolytes are throwing up. They basically just have to bail on the house. They can't do really? anything. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that I'm not going to cover. So definitely check out the book. It'll be in the show notes. But let's get into where his Mortal Kombat begins. This is when he gets his first shot at the visitors that are coming. His first chance to take a real stand. I finally had an experience with the nighttime visitors. It was in the middle of the night at the location of our ranch in Rainbow Valley. There wasn't a sound to be heard in the middle of the night. Back then, there weren't enough houses around for traffic much past 11 p.m. Whatever was visiting us in the middle of the night, leaving marks and brands and indents on Joyce and I, made little or no sound at least nothing that either one of us had heard up until that point, and certainly not enough to wake us up. On the night of my first engagement with them, it was not a sound that brought me out of my sleep. It was a touch. I had been lying in the bed for about 90 minutes with my eyes closed, unable to fall asleep, in some kind of dreamscape, in and out of consciousness, and I felt a cold and clammy thing touch my arm around the wrist and stroke my forearm along the inside right up to the elbow. I immediately sprang into action. I grabbed the baseball bat from behind the headboard and I swung as hard as I could right in front of me on my side of the bed. I heard a hiss. It's a little hard to describe. The closest thing I can compare it to is if you were to take a knife and puncture a soccer ball or football. It was that sound of the sudden evacuation of air under pressure. I flipped on the nightlight, and there they were. Three of the gray aliens right inside the bedroom, on my side of the bed. They stood about four feet tall. They had no genitalia. Their arms and legs were very thin. They were a little thicker up in the chest area, and their waists were uncommonly thin. They had large, globe-like heads with bulbous black eyes. The eyes were what haunted me the most like insect eyes, giant fly eyes. Before I could get another hit in with the baseball bat, they literally phased out. Now I know I sound crazy, but believe me when I tell you, Joyce has seen this over the years. People who have stayed at the ranch have seen this. They literally phase out as though they're behind an invisible stage curtain. And that was my first encounter with the Greys. Freaky. Yeah, you hear that a lot. The curtain idea, where the peeking out, that visual to me is so interesting. Just suddenly you see half of it, you know. Didn't we cover, was it a listener story recently where, I think it was a listener story, it had to do with fishbowl or a fish tank. Yeah, and then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He saw like an alien that was. It wasn't an alien. It was a, it was a like a sheet entity. Yeah. A floating right. sheet entity. Yeah. That was in our Halloween episode. Yeah, he saw it but through it kind of like phased in and out, didn't it? Yeah, it was a weird story. We'll link it in the show notes. I can't remember exactly how it went, but that was bizarre. Yeah. Same kind of idea, though. Something appearing in your home. Yeah. Eerie, though, just makes me think of communion. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's well, weird about these beings, whatever they are, the fact that they have these abilities, I would consider them high tech. I don't know if that's like a biological thing. I guess it could, could be. be. Or yeah. it could be, yeah, it's, it's hard to know. Like he talks a lot in the book about it. And I like this here, Bruce, it's hard to know who's writing certain points, but they talk about the fourth wall of our reality. And they talk about this as an example of, you know, the grays looking through the fourth wall, obviously in film, the fourth wall is when a character turns to the camera, starts talking like Ferris Bueller. That's breaking the fourth wall. Recognize the audience. Yeah. The idea is that these things exist behind that fourth wall and you're not supposed to know that there's that fourth wall there and that people in the know keep us, the sheep, unaware that there is that fourth wall. Just keep going about your daily life, but your spiritual self. Oh, that the aliens are the audience. Yeah. And like extraterrestrials, um, your spiritual side, the paranormal, that's the fourth wall that you're not supposed to be able to look at. And this is sort of a manifestation of that is there, here's that wall, here's the veil pulling back these guys peeking through. They can slip in and out. Yeah. The idea. So yeah, is it tech? Is it bio? It's weird though. Cause it's, I, is it energetic? Just for the, like their eyes, you know, it seems like they wouldn't be that intelligent. Like on a consciousness level, it seems more like, you know, like insects. I mean, because of the emotionlessness. Yeah. The drone idea we talked about before that they are basically controlled right. by another right. intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like that's a possibility. Some part biological. Even later when he kills one, right. And he has access to the body. He describes the blood or whatever, the fluid that makes this thing up is like brake fluid. He says it's so acidic, it actually burns to the touch and burns the floor. So Maybe it sounds they are like, like robots. Possible. Maybe as not we robots, would, as we would but describe some them. sort of biological stand-in. Right, android or puppet. Or yeah, puppet might be a good word. Also, says his eyes are, the eyes are chambered like a fly's eyes, which is interesting. I heard him mention that on another show. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't know if that was just a figure of speech, the fly's eyes, but you said on another show he mentioned that the, they're chambered. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I just want to quickly get into this story of, <laughs> because this is when it gets insane with his fighting back, with his retaliation, with his attempt to stop his wife being taken is where things really start to go off the rails here. So he starts staying awake at night, right? Or sleeping very softly, sleeping very intermittently because they've been getting these brands. They've been getting these marks. And he's been doing this thing where he'll just open his eyes randomly, try to catch something. And it's one of these times where he sees his wife floating above the bed, levitating. And this is the first time he's seen anything like this, obviously. And in his home, this is the first time he's seen his wife. Won't be the last but she's floating horizontally above the bed. He tries to grab her, pull her down, tries to wake her up, saying her name isn't working. Eventually, he has to physically pull her down. He tells her the next day, she's like, what are you talking about? She has to go on faith that this is happening because obviously she's sleeping. She's in this deep sleep where she's not, she's not responsive. This goes on for a while. He'll wake up to find her in different places in the house, but always leaving the bedroom, always down the hall. One day, he finds her in the hallway, and he goes up to stop her and realize he can't. She's moving about the pace of like an old woman on a walker. So he's trying to stop her and can't. This finally reached a dramatic conclusion one night when I was unable to wake her up even by grabbing her ankles. Nor was I able to stop the slow movement three feet off the ground, down the hallway and out the side wall. She went right through the wall. All I could do was walk beside her to see where the traction beam was taking her. When I got outside using the door, I looked up and there was a metallic disc in the air maybe a hundred feet off the ground and maybe a hundred feet in diameter and out of it was coming a blue-white light. I ran back into the house and got an AK-47. Joyce was moving underneath the center of the disc. The blue-white light was still fixed on her. I trained the AK-47 on the source of the light underneath the disc. I opened up with the banana clip 
which for those of you who don't know guns, is two clips taped together upside down, so that when one runs out, you pull it out quickly, turn the clip 180 degrees and reinsert it into the AK-47. Whatever I did, it worked. The blue white light disappeared and Joyce was dropped to the ground. This time she did wake up fully. This time she did have a full recall of what had happened. Crazy. Yeah. So guns can work against a UFO. <laughs> I guess. Apparently so. I guess it causes enough of a problem. I wonder how high up in the air she was. That's a good question. It must you know, not have been too high. Yeah, I mean, more than like a few feet, it really hurt yourself. That might be the only time you could affect a UFO like that. Like if they're in process of grabbing something, because otherwise you could shoot a gun at something and blip out. Oh, it's like that scene in Independence Day. Oh, yeah. With Randy Quaid flies up and going the, up the pipe. Yeah. Up the hoo ha. He says some sort of profane statement on the way up. I can't remember what it was now. Ram this up your cram, mother brothers. <laughs> Something like that. That was a TNT version. All right, you alien assholes. In the words of my generation, up yours! Yeah, anyway, just cra- just a crazy visual. A guy standing out in, in the desert <laughs> shooting yeah, an AK-47 bit. up into this flying disc. It's beaming his wife up. Yeah. Again, hard to believe, uh, but you got to make your own decisions here in this story. I I will, uh, again, recommend the book for sure. Obviously, we don't have time to get into this whole story. There's so much that happens on the ranch. I will quickly tell you that there's a whole menagerie of of strange things that start happening. There's one entity he refers to as the Michelin Man because it looks like- That was a creepy story. He actually references Ghostbusters in this because it kind of reminds him of the- Stay puffed. Yeah, but more Michelin-esque, but it's just walking around his property. And he sees in the distance randomly. How, how do you say how big it is? I don't have the number here. Uh, between five and nine feet tall. Okay. You know, maybe Bigfoot like. <laughs> but he said at this point, he was just so used to things appearing that he just let live and let live. It'd be in the distance. But eventually he got kind of close to his house. So he again got his AK 47 with a banana clip, started firing. Didn't seem to have any effect on this thing though. This thing was just kind of wandering nearby and then got closer and closer. Yeah. He says he still sees it out there sometimes. That's so crazy and yeah. weird. I love that idea, though. It's just hanging out. There was a Men in Black one, which was a typical Men in Black experience. He's with his neighbor cleaning his guns, and this is towards the beginning of his time as he's becoming sort of a spokesperson for the UFO community when he starts posting his story online, and they show up in a black SUV, walk through the iron gates like they're made of cigarette smoke, and basically tell him to knock it off. Passing through the iron gate itself. Exactly. Um, your typical men in black kind of weirdness, but let's get to the meat of the story here. The, the story that we've all been waiting for the story of his samurai action. Before I tell the story, I'll tell you what came to pass was almost destiny. He felt like where he was behind a truck and this is sort of the, the buildup of all of this going on with the grays and his anger. He's driving behind this truck near Christmas and it's bouncing. He's like, something's going to fall off that. Sure enough. Oh yeah. Something does. He pulls over to get it. It's a samurai sword that looks hand like a well-made. I mean, he's not an expert, he says, but it looked like a legit artifact. Yeah. And he felt like it just appeared in his life for this purpose, for the sole purpose of taking these guys out. Really? That's so, what he thought at the time? Yeah, he thought it? it was a weapon given to him to really push back against these guys. Didn't he, he first try to like chase the guy down and give him the sword back? Though? Yeah. He said he tried to reach up to the guy before, you know, because he didn't want to be a thief. Right. But it all ties back to the guy with the machete in the beginning. That's what I like about this story is and that you need a blade. Now you get it. Now you get why there's a guy living on the property in a shed for the last tenants that own the property. Yeah. It definitely could be turned into a movie, I feel like. Yeah. For sure. Might be the most effective. A blade weapon. You right. have to be holding it. You have to have the. You end. can't phase away from a blade. It keeps going. Maybe you can phase quickly enough for a bullet. I feel maybe, like it's been in sci-fi. Maybe someone needs to be holding it. Maybe it's about the person wielding the blade. Yeah. You know. So let's hear this account. Let's hear what happens with Samurai John. 
I put the samurai sword under the bed in the master bedroom. The days of baseball bats were past me. It was a blood sport now. The line in the sand was the beautiful horse they destroyed. In my reading on animal mutilations, they usually took place in pastures. As I said earlier in the story, the farmers would go out in the morning and find a dead animal. In my case, they did it right inside a stable. I had the distinct sense that what was done to my horse was done to traumatize me. It was done to intimidate me. It was done as an act of confrontation. I received the message. I started to see the greys in all of their various stages. It is really one of the more remarkable things I've ever seen, watching them come from wherever they come from into our reality. Imagine someone peeking out from behind a shower curtain so that all you see is their face. That's how the greys peeked into our reality at the ranch before they fully stepped into it. You would either see just the face or the head poke through and no body. I would be sitting on the sofa watching television with Joyce and I would catch out of my peripheral vision one of the greys peeking through. If I saw them, they didn't step through. A few times I saw them peek through without them seeing me. Then I saw them step through. I can only describe it as some kind of real world computer generated interface. It was so astounding to watch. Since the baseball bat to the head incident in the master bedroom, the greys had been less finicky about materializing. Once the code is broken, once a human being knows what's going on from this three-dimensional reality, they're not so big on keeping the secret anymore, and they really don't care if you see them. I'm not saying they go out of their way to be seen, it's just that they seem a lot less preoccupied with being caught in the house. I was in a constant state of vigilance. I was looking for a confrontation. I considered the samurai sword to be an act of providence, some great act of fortune, the universe telling me to go to war. So I soldiered. One day I was home alone. Joyce was at work. I was comfortably nestled in the sofa with a Triumph motorcycle gas tank and several grades of sandpaper. I had machines in the shop to do the grinding, but when it got down to the final work, I liked to do it by hand. So sometimes I would set up camp in the living room, lay down some newspaper to catch the grit sandpaper took off, and relax in front of the television while I did some of the finer work on the motorcycle restoration. I felt the pressure change around me. They were close by, but not yet visible. It was at these times that I would maintain absolute calm. The key was to not give them any emotional or mental indicators that you were aware of their presence. I had been working on this mental and emotional training for months. I used my peripheral vision to glance around me. I changed the channel on the television to make them think I was unaware. Sure enough, they appeared. I saw the first one poke his head out. They were in the sunroom. I had a clear line of sight from the living room sofa. I casually stood and walked to the bedroom. I bent down and grabbed the samurai sword from under the bed. I placed it on the inside of the door frame to the master bedroom. I then went back to the sofa and casually resumed what I had been doing, changing the television channel once again. This was all part of my cover. A couple minutes later, I saw three of them phase into the sunroom. I didn't move right away. I didn't look back, not even with my peripheral vision. After waiting about 90 seconds, I got up and went back to the bedroom. I grabbed the samurai sword. I went down a hallway that hid me. It would bring me out right at the sunroom without them seeing me coming. 
I unsheathed the sword. I glanced around the corner and the three greys were inside the sunroom. I could charge right in with the sword and swing. I took a slow, deep breath through my nostrils and charged. My stroke was perfect. I cut the head clean off one of the greys. The other two dematerialized immediately. It turns out that they cannot dematerialize with their heads cut off. I had pummeled them with baseball bats, put bullets in them, and stabbed them in the past, but nothing had prevented them from phasing out of my reality, out of my reach, and safe from my wrath. The samurai sword changed all of that. Like some cheesy subtext in a horror movie, they were killed by chopping their heads off. Interesting. This was a major error for a race of beings that wanted to maintain anonymity. We can safely assume that part of their mission is clandestine. They do not want the collective consciousness of the human race working on them as a problem. Secrecy is part of their mandate. When I severed the gray alien's head, part of that secrecy was destroyed. I picked up the two parts of the body and wrapped them in plastic. The head and the corpse. I put them in a large freezer we kept for meat. When Joyce got home, I wonder what alien tastes like. I was just wondering. See, when that. Joyce got home, we had them for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> when Joyce got home that night, she saw the mess, a brownish liquid on the walls and floor. I had no choice but to tell her what had happened. It might sound weird, but by this point, we were so accustomed to the ranch that nothing really struck us as weird anymore. So when I told Joyce I killed a gray with a samurai sword, <laughs> it took her about five seconds to digest, and then she nodded. Her only question was, what did I do with the corpse? <gasps> There's a question. My question. Yeah. Then why did you wait for me to come home to clean the walls off? <laughs> There's a lot of questions in there. A lot of questions for sure. Um, That's pretty straightforward. Flies and dice. I, yeah, I mean... I mean, we could probably do another two-hour show on this. I yeah. Have so oh, yeah. Many, I mean, there's uh, so much left you in could this book. You could do seven episodes on this. Yeah. yeah. There's so many things that I have questions about. There's crazy stories that, we're, unfortunately, I'm not gonna, we're not going to have time to tell today, but there are crazy stories about what happens later on at the ranch when he starts having mediums call. And people mm -hmm. come and actually, there's a part where a woman who comes who's, she's part extraterrestrial, allegedly. Darcy. And she comes with two Syrian walk-ins from Syria constellation. And there's like a thunderstorm, purple lightning power explosion. When these ships decloak, it's a whole thing. Aren't they, aren't they carrying like broadswords? They're carrying broadswords. He's like, I know it sounds crazy. Like Highlander? Like, why would higher dimensional beings be carrying like seventh century armor? But it happened. Like there's crazy <laughs> stuff that happens. Is his wife still around? Yeah. They still, they're still together. Them? And they're still there, I'm pretty sure. Have you heard them talk? Jeremy has. What are your impressions? I just wanted to get it from the books. I haven't yeah, seen the interviews. It's hard to say. I mean, I've heard him talk. I've heard him interviewed. Like I said, he, Tony interviewed him from the confessionals. And I just heard that interview. Yeah, he sounds, you know, there's no reason for me to doubt him based. He doesn't sound like he's a sneaky guy by any stretch of the imagination. You don't get like a vibe. Yeah, but you can kind of get a sense of like how credible someone is by their story. I mean, sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, the last one I listened to was uh, from a show called uh, Supernatural Girls. But on that interview, I listened to it like double speaks. I was trying to find if he mentioned where he is now and if he's still at the ranch and what's going on. I didn't hear any of that, but I did hear some things that were curious to me. Like I mentioned the doppelganger story, which is a fascinating story where essentially he's finally trying to get out from the ranch and have a break with his wife where they can be themselves again, this he couple. Said he said it's like he finds his wife again when they leave the ranch. Exactly. They don't talk about the ranch or all the crazy stuff going on when they leave. Right. Maybe talk about her work as a FBI. She's like a secretary or something. Clerk. The FBI. So they're going there, they're, you know, they're talking, having a good time, just getting away from the ranch. They get to the restaurant. They both sit down. They, the waitress comes by. She excuses herself to use the restroom. And 
Meanwhile, he turns his phone on while his wife's in the bathroom and sees all these voicemails, starts listening to them. They're his wife, irate that he left her at home. He never waited for her to come get in the car and go with him to the restaurant. So at this moment, he's thinking, if my wife is at home angry at me that I'm, I left without her, who is the woman that left with me and is now in the bathroom at this restaurant who he thought was his wife? That's a creepy Twilight Zone episode. Doppelganger. So the, the thing that came up here, of course, was in the story, in the book, I believe she comes back mm-hmm. and her eyes are black. Yeah. That's because he, he realizes he never looked at her this entire time. He's been like looking at the road. It was dark. You know, he didn't look at her since he left. He didn't look at her in the eyes. And the eyes is where like she has really bright blue eyes. So when it came back and had these black eyes, he just got up and got out of there because he knew that this was not his yeah, wife. Yeah, they became black as she realized that he had her. Like, he well, that, I mean, this whole thing is, what is the purpose of it? You know, right. what are these things doing? Well, this is, this the is, reason you asked me about that was because in the, what I heard on the 2020 interview from Supernatural Girls, he, he tells the story, but he said, they asked him like, well, did she come back from the restroom? What did you do? And he's like, she never came back. I asked the waitress to go check on her and she said that she was so gone. the story's different. There's a discrepancy. Like when oh, you remember, she came one. back to the, the that's table. That's a big discrepancy. So the, the one I mentioned earlier, the possibility was that it's the book is written by another guy, right? They're working on it together, but the guy who's the trained writer is a different guy, Bruce. Bruce McDonald. Maybe he twisted it, maybe it, on accident, maybe. maybe. Maybe that's why there's some discrepancies, but it's hard to say without comparing his like verbal stories even throughout. The, well, it's, that could be because even in the book, in his forward and Bruce's forward, he talks about it's the lights in when he's living in Costa Rica that reminded him of the book and made him want to go back where I think it's talked about later. It sounds like that was a warning. So there's two voices in the book at certain oh. points. So it's hard to know Yeah, what's an honest accident and what's like a twisting of the truth yeah. or just a evidence of a lie. Right. It, it's, hard, it's hard to know. But, but this is, this was interesting. Well, let me say this before I get to the smoking gun evidence. I'll just get to your question here, John, about you said, what's the purpose of all of this? Yeah. We didn't get to this, but- Maybe in another episode someday, but or get the book, read it for yourself. Very interesting. According to some really fascinating people that reach out to John, he's told that there are portals on his property. And this is Arizona, so you hear portals all the time. But there is one on his property that is a very high vibration portal, I guess. And it's allegedly a portal that not only moves you around, but also through time. So mm. it's a very unique portal on this planet. This is all in the yeah. later parts of the book. He said that according to this person that helped him understand a lot of this, she said that these things that are coming, they're a rogue group of greys. I'm kind of throwing all this in here at the end for you, but they're a rogue group of greys that are interacting just like humans. There are good and bad of everybody, allegedly, but they're, even though they're negative, they're attracted to this light portal because everything is attracted to things that are good. Whatever the creator creates, even negative things are attracted to. That's the idea behind this because they need it. His land is special. That's the whole reason. You go back to, there's obviously Skimwalker. Mm-hmm. Bigelow was involved with this ranch as well. Oh, really? Bigelow tried to buy it from him, according to him, just wouldn't give him a high enough offer. That, really? was, that was the thing. And according to the evidence, he said, you know, Bigelow came, some guys did some tests. They came back, but they said that there was, you know, they were offering him lower amount of money. They said that, you know, all the blood and stuff that was on the walls, that they actually took samples of the walls because they knew that allegedly he had killed a bunch of these guys with a samurai sword. Bigelow's guys took samples and according to him, they had, he had called him and confirmed at least he was not a big fan of Bigelow because he kept lowballing him. He said, right. But he said at least he did confirm that what they found in the samples of the fluid on the walls was in fact something unexplainable 
and was something that was allegedly maybe ET related. So there's something about the ranches in this area because there's a third ranch in this area. Bradshaw Ranch. Bradshaw which is, ranch. There's a whole conspiracy around that ranch too. Right. Uh, we'll get to another day. But end of the day, I'll finish it with this. This is the evidence, John. He sent some samples off to a guy who was a, a well-received academic. Dr. Levengood was his name. He was a biophysicist at the University of Michigan. Anyway, he also had a big passion for unexplained chemistry, biophysics, things like that. He was super into crop circles in the 90s. So he was an ally in the ufology field, even though he was a respected academic at the University of Michigan. He was sent the samples, and this is what he had said. He said, blood. The sample appears to be pure hemoglobin, like that found at the cattle mutilation sites with what appears to be segmented rods in the blood. Never seen anything like it. Skin. Looks like segmented grass, except it's not grass. Quote, you have the smoking gun. This is proof of alien life visiting Earth and links the phenomenon together positively. Interesting. This is from this biophysicist. Unfortunately, he said for whatever reason that he would never publish this paper. So this is just in correspondence with John and a couple other guys in the exopolitics world that, that read this. But he went on the record, just not published. Just not in a published paper. Like he didn't publish the findings. And... John, of course, thinks it's because he was intimidated. Like he was yeah, intimidated. I mean, that's a very real possibility, especially if the government is somehow involved. And, in, right. you know, I mean, I've over the years, we've heard many yeah. whistleblowers talk about how these grays are involved in certain clandestine government, mm -hmm. you know, deep black projects. And were there agreements? Are they taking people under an accordance with the U.S. government at some point? Yeah, you know? well, there's no way to know. But if they are trying to keep the secret, then it's possible. I'm sure they're keeping tabs on this stuff if it is super secret, which yeah. it probably would be. And they're knowing that these correspondents, it's just weird. Like, what is their purpose of messing with him? It's a battery idea. That's what he talks about. Like it, he said, when he, when he started fighting back, it was just- They didn't want to kill him, obviously, because it seems like they could have if they wanted yeah, to. In the book, it talks about, it's a couple factors there. One, they don't want him there. Basically, they're sitting on, he does, he's unaware of it, but they're sitting on what they think is their property because they have portals that- Obviously, he doesn't know how to access. So because they know how these portals work, that's their property. He's just there and in the way. So they're doing things Why don't they to- they just kill him? Then? They're not allowed. That's the other thing. Remember when I mentioned these weird Syrian walking guys that were there to help? Yeah. yeah. And do some sort of negotiation with these cloaked ships, all this crazy stuff? According to John and according to people he's talked to, and you hear this in other cases where like you'd constantly get people who are affected but not killed, right? right. You can get uh, messed with but not killed because there are other higher beings- and this all sounds, you know, the new age idea, but we're in the belief other higher beings in this galactic federation or whatever uh -huh. that, you know, are very aware of the grace and who interact with them regularly. And they know that they're not allowed to kill. Is it like a universal law? Or exactly. Something? They can mess with them and stuff and do, you know, the animals aren't a problem, I guess, but you can't kill human life hmm. without, without consequences. And the grays here don't want the consequences. So they do whatever they can, just like in a haunting poltergeist activity to get the person off the property, but without actually injuring or at least mortally injuring the person. It's all, and it's all crazy stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of, you got to suspend a little bit of disbelief, but it's a good story. Especially since he wrapped the body in plastic and kept it in his refrigerator. I, what happened to the body? I think That's it disappeared. Question. I think so eventually, he, oh, did they take I, it or I don't something? know. I just heard him on the most recent podcast I, that I found, like I mentioned, we'll link that in the show so you guys can listen. They asked him like, well, what about the body? And he wrapped it in plastic, put it in the refrigerator, but he, he had mailed uh, samples to this doctor and they're like, well, what about the rest of the carcass? And he's like, well, I, I, we mailed it all to him. It just in different parts. I didn't read that in the book. That was that's like an. I don't know. Maybe that, that was further thing? information that came out because I, I feel like if he had mailed the whole carcass to this guy, uh huh. I mean, who knows? I mean, the guy did. But what happened to the doctor? That's the question. That apparently, he died. I don't know at what point he died, but he was eighty nine or something. Eighty eight or eighty nine. So in in this other interview, he says that well, he he's dead now, and his wife's dead. 
And the lab was apparently moved to California somewhere, but they don't have access to the body anymore. So was mm. it taken? Did it exist? Was it there? Yeah, it's the question. These are the questions. Uh, Interesting story. Yeah. It's definitely a fascinating story. I didn't realize how out in the world of exopolitics he was for a long period of time. And I, I guess he's taken maybe a little bit of a break, but he was there last year. But he he talks about this a lot too. It is a very murky world. All these egos in the world of exopolitics, yeah. all these people that are out there, people butting heads with other people. I'm sure <laughs> so it gets funny. dirty. I wouldn't want to be in that. I think the people are fascinating who are involved doing lectures in the lecture yeah, circuit. Yeah, for I, sure. A lot of them are my heroes, but I imagine it's got to be hard to be in that world. You have heroes? Mm -hmm. Well, like Richard Dolan, Richard big fan of great. Richard Dolan. <laughs> He's my hero. <laughs> He's my hero. Um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that story. That's There's story. plenty more. If you want, the book's great. Check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. We hope you join us in the expansion. We're going to get into some fascinating evil artifacts and haunted items. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting episode, guys. So definitely want to check that out. Yes. And we have some members to thank, some new members. Let's of the get it going. Hall. Let's do it. All right. All right. Thank you to new member of the whole, Ashley Laffaday. Oh, oh la laugh another day. Laugh all day with Ashley. She's a great gal. Thank you, Ashley. Welcome to be here. Welcome to Kangaroo Becky. Kangaroo Becky, there she is. There How she doing? is. Hey, hippity little lady. hop, hippity hop. Yes. Amazing landscape painter. Yes. Great girl. Welcome to Renee Benitez. Benitez is Welcome, Renee. <laughs> Welcome, Renee. Welcome to the hole. We are grateful you're here. Big hug coming at you. Awesome. Welcome to Jesse Dial. Yes. Or dial Dill. it up. Or Dill. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Dial it up. Let's go with Dial. That's more fun. All right. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Tony Her. It's mm. good to see you. Yes. Oh, Tony Her. Tony Her. Welcome. Don't hurt me. Mm. <laughs> okay, no. Welcome, sir. Tony Her make you want to purr. Welcome to Robert Drac. Dracula. Welcome in, Robert. Oh, he did that great story that we, we did. We had a fantastic story from him. Was yeah. it Dratch? Might have been Dratch. I like can't Ratchet. remember. Robert Dratch. Either way, we love you, however it's pronounced. Yes, thank you so much, my friend. Welcome to Tyler Bentz. All right, yes. welcome in, Tyler Bentz. Still building that fence in my yard, though. Excellent. We want full access to this yard. Oh, guys, yes. I hope you brushed your teeth, because tonight we've got sweeter meat mm. in the belief hole. Sure, it's not sweater meat. It's sweater meat, yes. which is <laughs> even better. Even better. <laughs> it's sweater meat. That was my nickname in middle school. That's like a clothes you need to wash, my friend. Sweater welcome meat. in. Welcome in. Awesome. Welcome to Tim Farmer. Oh, Tim Farmer. Plant those seeds and husk your corn. Plant those bleephole seeds. Because Tim Farmer's in town. Awesome. Welcome to Lindsay Oteza. Welcome, Lindsay. Ote Oteza. Yes. Oteza beat. What? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say something that didn't make any sense. Okay, well, most new. of these don't. Yes. Welcome in. Welcome to Sharissa M. Corn. That was a fun, like the band Corn. With a K? With a K. The backwards cool. R? Rock and roll. No, the R is not backwards. What was the first name? Sharissa. Sharissa. Welcome to be here, Sharissa. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for the support. Sincerely. Dusty Griffith? Yes. All right. Good to have you in the hole, my friend. Welcome to be here. Dusty. Shake off the dust. Get in the hole. Patricia Austin. All right. Patricia Capital, Austin. Texas. Welcome. Excellent. Welcome to be here, Patricia. Awesome. Welcome to Taylor DeVore. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. Pretty last name. Sultry. Yes. If I pronounce that right. Welcome yes. in, Tay-Tay. And finally, yes. welcome. welcome to yes. Gretchen. Ooh, yes. Gretchen. Hi, oh, hi. Yes. Yes. Welcome, yes. Gretchen. Yes. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Yes, thank you Love so you. much, guys. Thank you so much for supporting the show. If you haven't heard your name yet, hang in there. We're getting through this list. We will get to you. And also, if you want to be sure that your name is heard, sign up at the expansion. This might be confusing. We have two places you can sign up for the same exact bonus awesome quality content you can do it at patreon but we recommend you do it at belief hole yeah it's definitely better if you do it on belief hole yeah so go to beliefhole.com click on the red sign up for expansion button and it will take you to our special just for you expansion website 
where you can sign up and you get all these bonus extra features and all that. Yada, Amen, yada. sister. Um, thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you for all the reviews you guys leave. We see those come in when they come in and that we love we love seeing yeah. them and we want to start reading those maybe at some point, but we really appreciate it. It really helps grow the show. If you guys are still here and you are near a YouTube, hit the like button. <laughs> There's a YouTube down the hall you can get to maybe on the if way to the bathroom. If you are watching the YouTube video, hit the like button and any subscribe. other way that you would like to support the show. We firmly appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, we hope, hope you guys like today's story. Absolutely. Check out the book. The book will be in the show notes too. Whatever you think about it, it's very controversial. It's, who knows? But it's a really good read. It's a great story and you can make your own conclusions. So definitely check it out. Stardust Ranch. Yes, to, this season's going to be great, guys. So hang in there. We're going to have some awesome stories, some awesome, fascinating topics, some deep dive research episodes coming up as well. So anything else, boys? Goodbye to you guys. And I will see the expansion members in our expansion episode. So check it out. And we'll catch you next time on Lethal. slow, deep breath through my nostrils and charged. My stroke was perfect. <laughs> like ejaculating. <laughs> I cut the head clean off one of the grays. It was awesome. <laughs> that was added. That was so cool. That, that was so cool.